This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. We are very honored, Iranian Studies Program is very honored tonight, uh, to have uh, amongst us uh, one of the bright stars of Iranian Studies, and I say this with no tar off and no hyperbole. Uh, Professor Lewis is now at the University of Chicago, uh, where he did his uh, graduate work. He did his undergraduate work somewhere around here, across the bay. Uh, and uh, tonight he's going to uh, talk about Chaucer and Attar and Rumi. And uh, we are very honored and privileged that he accepted our invitation. Uh, thank you very much for that very kind introduction. I hope it won't be a disappointment what you see after that, but, uh, and thank you for coming this evening. I am uh, quite excited to be here, um, not only because the other end of the bay used to be a haunt of mine, but uh, because uh, there is an interest and a growing program here in Iranian studies, uh, which is very gratifying to see, and Professor Milani and the Hamid and Christina Mogadam program here are doing great things. Uh, so I'm very honored and grateful uh, to be here to talk to you tonight about Chaucer's Pious Queen and a Persian in a Pear Tree. So this paper deals with Persian and Arabic analogs for material that subsequently appears in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales and Boccaccio's Decameron. Uh, these tales uh, are in essence, the same or strongly similar without one of them being the source of the other necessarily. I am approaching the topic as a Persianist, but these earlier analogs should also prove of interest to European medievalists and may possibly reorient us somewhat in thinking about the provenance of sources for two rather famous tales that occur in Europe in a whole host of versions, the most notable being those of uh, Boccaccio and Chaucer. One of these tales is a fabliau about a wife cuckolding her husband uh, quite literally under his very eyes and talking her way out of it. And the other is about the transformative and salvific power of female chastity, a faithful wife persecuted for her beauty. I hope to contribute with this in some small way to the effort to recover the cultural currents that carried the flotsam and jetsam on the sea of story from one end of the Mediterranean to the other. That Arabic works of science and philosophy were translated to European languages during the medieval period is a well-established fact. The extent to which literary texts and performance practices of the Islamicate world may have influenced troubadour poetry, inspired the popularity of the frame tale structure in Europe, or provided a model for particular tales or tale types in Europe remains in dispute. In some scattered cases, such as Barlam wa Budasif or Kalila wa Demna, uh, the fables of Bidpai, the transmission history from one language to the next can be documented and traced. The languages being implicated in this process may include Sanskrit, Middle Persian, Syriac, Arabic, Greek, Hebrew, Georgian, etc. And indeed, it seems quite reasonable to assume that along with foodstuffs, textiles, 
other goods and slaves, stories were also traded back and forth in the Mediterranean ecumen, and that the increased contact brought about by the Crusades, as well as efforts to translate scientific and philosophic texts in Andalusia, Sicily, and elsewhere, would also have encouraged literary exchange. However, corroborating evidence that proves or establishes precise avenues of transmission for story analogs is typically lacking. And since we cannot exclude the possibility of polygenesis when similar archetypes or themes are noted in chronologically proximate European and Middle Eastern versions, arguments about influence often remain at the level of circumstantial inference and conjecture. The two tales I wish to submit as evidence for your consideration tonight are First, the chaste woman or persecuted empress tale type, famously epitomized by the Constance or Custance legend, which Chaucer retells in the last decade of the 14th century in his Man of Laws tale in the Canterbury Tales. Chaucer's immediate sources for his Custance tale are seen to be in Nicholas Trivet's Anglo-Norman Chronicle and John Gower's Confessio Amantis, though there are also earlier versions in Latin. There are two close and earlier analogs for this in Islamicate literatures, a Persian rendition of the basic tale, though in another setting, which occurs in Farid din Attar's mystical Masnavi, the Elahi Nameh, written in the 12th century in Neshapur in eastern Iran. Heshmat Muayyad has traced the source for the story in question by Attar to an Arabic compendium of Shiite law, Al-Furu min al-Kafi, written by Al-Kulaini in the 10th century in Ray in central Persia. However, the analogic relationship between the Islamicate recitations of the tale and the European versions has not previously been noticed and does not occur in Robert Coriali's new and revised edition of Sources and Analogues for Chaucer. The second tale is the pear tree episode, which occurs at the end of Chaucer's Merchant's Tale and is also known in an earlier, though somewhat different version, appearing in Boccaccio's Decameron, as well as in still earlier Latin versions. The Islamicate versions of this tale, one in Persian by Jalaluddin Rumi and an earlier one in Arabic by Ibn al-Jawzi, which exhibit respectively gender and botanical variation but are in essence the same tale, were briefly noted as long ago as the 1880s, but the relationship between the European and Islamicate versions have never been explored. For the pear tree tale of deceit, we have two famous European versions. You may see a picture of this pear tree here, taken from a manuscript illumination painted by Flemish artists between 1430 and 1440 to illustrate the French translation of the Decameron, which Boccaccio was composing around 1350 to 1352, though it is set in 1348 during the Black Plague. Incidentally, John Payne of the Omar Khayyam Society and translator of the Arabian Nights and of Hafez produced a translation of the Decameron in 1886, which may in part account for the pear tree analog in Rumi having been noticed by Clouston back in the 19th century. A later pear tree episode in Middle English dating from the 1390s is told by the merchant in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. The pear tree episode is presented as an exploration of the gender wars. More precisely, it describes the wiles of wives. Chaucer's merchant, married all of two months, is most unhappy with his shrewish wife, who, as he tells us in the prologue to his tale, he suspects could hold her own toe-to-toe -to -toe with the devil himself. Ye have a weef, the worst that may be, for though the fiend to hear ye coupled were, she will him overmach ye darwell swear. 
The merchant offers these comments in response to the clerk's tale, which comes before it and features the long-suffering patience exhibited by the heroine, Griselda, a wife much wronged by her husband. The clerk concludes from it that wives should not be meek and humble before the husbands, as was Griselda, but should, in imagery that seems to connect strong women with the Orient, noisily clap their tongues to defend themselves from offense and to be as strong as camels and as aggressive as tigers in so doing. Ye archa weavers stondeth at defense, sin ye be strong as is a great kamai. Ne suffereth not that men you do no offense, and sclindra weavers feeble as in batai, baith egra as is a tigre yond in ind. I clappeth as a mila iyo consai. The merchant's tale actually blames the silly old husband, January, a knight from Lombardy who has been a confirmed bachelor playboy all of his life, but decides to take a wife at age 60 for all sorts of pious and practical reasons about which he waxes quite rapturously before insisting, however, that his bride must be under 20. The young wife he winds up selecting is marrying into ease, but on their wedding night she finds him somewhat less than attractive and somewhat less vigorous despite various aphrodisiacs, than she had expected. She is, however, dutiful and remains with January, who has a favorite enclosed garden which he keeps locked up. He delights in taking his young bride there to amorously disport. January's manservant, Damian, has fallen in love at first sight with May and fallen ill in his pining for her. January inadvertently paves the way for Damian's suit by sending May to look in on him. He gives her the love letter he wears around his neck, and she reads it that night in the privy and throws it away. She remains dutiful to her husband, from whom she also stands to gain a sizable inheritance, but out of pity, she resolves to satisfy Damien one day. Later, January goes blind and becomes insanely jealous, never letting go of May's hand. She copies the garden key and by exchange of letters has Damien enter the garden to meet her there. One June day in the garden, January talks to May of his insecurities and asks her to pledge to remain faithful, and she so vows. But even while doing so, she sees Damien sitting under the bush she had appointed and signals him to climb up a tree full of fruit, a piri, or pear tree. Pluto, the king of the fairies, is watching all this from on high and tells his wife, Proserpine, that he will restore January's sight so that he will see his wife's cuckolding deceit and his own servant's treachery. But Proserpine vows to give May the wit to answer her husband back on behalf of all womankind. May thus sees Damian all miri, perched up in the lush green leaves of the piri, and turns to tell January, Imost han of the Paris that he say, or imut di so sur longeth me, to Aden of the smaller Paris grain, help for here love that is of heaven a quain. I tell you well, a woman in me plit may han to fruit so great an appetite that she may deen but she of it have. January laments, he cannot get the fruit for her as he is blind, but she offers to climb the tree herself, if his jealousy will permit. Alas, quod he, that I ne had here a canav that could climbe. Alas, alas, quod he, for I am blind. Ye sire, no force, quod she, but would ye vouch yourself for goddess sack, the piri in with your armes for to tack, for well ye would that ye mistrust me, then should ye climbe well enough, quod she, so I me foot me set upon your back. 
So climbing on his back, she goes ascending into the tree, assisted by her husband, whereon, and I will here repeat Chaucer's warning lines, that what you are about to hear is an NC-17 presentation, but cannot be glossed over. Ladies, I pray you that ye be not ruth, I cannot gloves, I am a rude man, and suddenly anon this Damian gan pulling up the smoke, and in he throng. Pluto here restores January's sight and made him see as well as ever he micht. Naturally, the first thing he looks for is his beloved wife, whereon he casts his two eyes up at the tree. And saw that Damian, his wife, had dressed in switch manner it may not been expressed, but if he would have spake uncourteously, and up he aff a roaring and a cry, uh, actually a cree, as doth the mother when the child shall dee. Oot, help, alas, haro, he gan to cree, O strong lady stura, what dost thou? Proserpine gives May the quick wit to reply. And she answered, Sire, what aileth you? Have patience and reason in your mind? He have you help on both your e'en blind. She explains that she had been told that she could cure January's blindness by following a certain medicinal regimen of struggle with a man on a tree, and has done this with full good intent. January, not yet taken in, replies to this, Struggle, quod he, yea, all gate in it went. God gave you both on Shama's death to Dean. He swived thee, he saw it with me in. May counters that her medicine must be false, for if he could see properly, he would not have said such things to her. His sight must still be damaged. Yehan some glimpsing, and no perfect sicht. He protests in the following lines, I say quad he, as well as every imicht, thunk it be God, alhamdulillah, with both min ian twa, and be me truth, me thought he did thee so. The thanks I get, she protests to him and begins to apologize, say, and he begins to apologize, saying for her to come down and swear. But be me father soul, he wind hand saying how that this Damian had by the lane and that this the smoke had lain upon his breast. She replies that a man has blurry vision when he first wakes up from sleep, and so must it be with a man just returning from long blindness. Your sight will settle down all right in a couple days, but until then you might see some strange things. As she concludes, Bethwar, I pray you, for by heaven the king, full many a man waneth to seen a thing, and it is all another than it sameth. He that misconceiveth, he misdameth. And with these words, she leapt down from the tree. January takes her in his arms, kisses her, and strokes her softly on her womb, and takes her home. Here, the pair may be connected with female fertility because of the shape of both womb and fruit. Now let us turn to our Persian in the pear tree, which tale occurs in what is perhaps the most widely read poem in the Persianate cultural sphere from Bosnia to Bengal, the Masnavi Ma'navi of Jalaluddin Rumi. It also appears in a version told in Arabic prose by Ibn al-Jawzi of Baghdad, in his collection of anecdotes called The Book of the Intelligent, Kitab al-Azkiyat. Rumi's version of the pear tree used to deceive and cuckold a husband comes from book four of the six books of Rumi's Masnavi. We know that book two was begun in 1263 to 64 after a hiatus uh, at two full years, 
uh, following the completion of book one. The hagiographical accounts calculate that this would place the books, book one's composition sometime in about 1262. Book four has to have been completed, therefore, between 1264 and Rumi's death in 1273, if each book, on average, about 4,500 lines, took, let's say, one year to complete, book four would date to sometime around the years 1266 to 1267. However, Rumi had perhaps thought of including this story before in book one, since lines 2363 to 64 of book one say, on the top of the wild pear tree you see such things, come down from that so that your suppositions will not remain. When you turn around and make yourself all dizzy, you'll see the room spin around, and it's just you who spins. Perhaps the joke has been orally told on the night this part of the text was recited and recorded in Book One, but omitted later because it was initially thought too body for inclusion. Most of the body tales in the Masnavi actually occur in Book Four, along with most of the Fabliau. More likely, its original place has been moved, as is the case with the tale sequences in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, or the lines were inserted into the text here as a final corrected copy of the text was being prepared after a draft of all the books had been completed. In any case, it is a story that has some enduring importance, it would seem, for Rumi. At any rate, Rumi's telling predates Boccaccio's version by at least 80 years, Written in Anatolia in an ethnically and religiously diverse society of Turks, Greeks, Armenians, Arabs, and Persians at the Saljuk capital at Konya, a Sunni Muslim government, though many of the Greeks remained Christian, many of the Turks were as not yet completely Islamicized, and Mongol power was exercising influence. Rumi tells the story proper in 14 lines of Ramal meter verse, 22 syllables per line, preceded in the text by a heading consisting of a prose summary of the story along with its moral. He then elaborates that moral in verse, giving a spiritual meaning to the fablio and urging the reader toward the celestial tree that reveals true vision. In 1888, W.A. Clouston already noted in brief this pear tree tale in Rumi as an analog to that of January, May, and Damien in Chaucer's The Merchant's Tale. Clouston did not, however, succeed in drawing much attention attention to this startling analog, in part because of his marginal inclusion of the example from Rumi, and in part because he was more interested in later Islamicate versions of the tale, which he mistook as direct evidence of its original source. These later Persian texts attesting the tale include the Bahar Donesh, or Ocean of Knowledge, by Inayatullah Kanbu of Delhi, who died in 1671. The Bahara Dhanesh version sets the tale in India with a Brahmin in the role of lover, and Clouston supposed India to be the tale's birthplace. However, this Indian setting is not the one in which the Islamicate versions of the story first appear, and may be contaminated, in fact, by the 17th century Mughal emperor Akbar's campaign of translation of Persian works to Sanskrit and vice versa, or by Rumi's well-known version itself. Clouston also mistook the version of this tale found in the Arabian Nights cycle for an earlier version than Rumi's. 
We now know this particular tale was a later addition to the Arabian Nights cycle, of which the earliest recorded manuscript dates to the 14th century and does not include the pear tree story, nor does it include Ali Baba and the 40 Thieves or Sinbad's Adventures or all of the very famous stories which identify it for most Western readers. Rumi's version of the tale, which as we have noted dates to before 1270, is introduced in prose as follows. Story of the debauched wife, Zanipalid Kar, who, took, who told her husband, those illusions, khialat, appear to you from the top of the wild pear tree, Amrud Bon, because the top of the wild pear tree reveals such things to the human eye. Come down from the wild pear tree so that those illusions disappear. And if anyone should say that what that man was seeing from the top of the wild pear tree was no illusion, the answer is this. This is a parable, not a similitude. Mesalis namest. As parable, it is sufficient, for had he not gone to the top of the wild pear tree, he would never have seen those things, whether they were real or an illusion. Rumi then tells, in verse, how a woman wished to do it, barzanad, with her lover in full view of her deluded husband. Toward that specific goal, she pretends to climb a tree to pick fruit for him. At the top of the as yet unspecified fruit tree, she looks down and weeping, calls her husband a degenerate fag, ma'abunerad, saying he has some lout humping him and that he is spread-eagled like a woman beneath this fellow and must therefore be secretly gay, mochanas, connoting effeminate or unmanly. In lines 35, 49 through 55, the husband insists he is all alone and suggests the wife's head is spinning from the height of the tree. She then starts to describe the other man as wearing a cap and really bearing down hard on the husband's back. The husband shouts for her to come down, thinking she has lost her mind. As soon as she gets down from the tree, up he goes, and she immediately takes her paramour into her embrace. Who is that, you whore, he shouts, from the top of the tree, all over you like a monkey. No one here but me, you must be dizzy, she retorts. When he insists upon what he sees, she suggests it is due to the Amrud Bon tree, which dictionaries define as a kind of pear tree. It is difficult to botanically tell precisely what fruit tree Rumi has in mind, for it is not the common Persian word for a pear, golabi, though there is an item of foodstuffs specified from the Achaemenid era in the Persepolis fortification tablets that may well be the same word, amrud, whether or not the same species is intended. It may be that this amrud bon is associated in folklore as an aphrodisiac, but we must note that the amrud root has far more etymological utility and semiotic charge in this instance than would the normal word golabi in any case, because the word for catamite, amrad, which is what the wife claims to see, her husband turned into a catamite, or more precisely, a beardless youth, the maf'ul, or receiving party of penetration. The wife explains, you cuckold, galtabon, I too misperceived, kaj hamididam while in the tree, and tells him to come down. Rumi now tells the reader, not to think this fablio is merely funny, although one has the sense that the reason that he tells the tale in the first place is probably because it's funny. However, he never lets you rest just with funniness. It's also instructive. Do not think of the actual pear tree, but of the pear tree of existence, atop which our ego deceives us, makes us squint and see awry. Come down from selfishness, hastiomani, and you will see straight and speak aright. 
Rumi continues on to say that if you are humble, God grants true vision, which after all, even Muhammad had to pray for. And then the pear tree will become to you a tree of Moses, not Amrud Bon, but transformed by God's command, be Amre Kon, into a burning bush. Now you may see by divine alchemy the true tree mentioned in the Quran as having firm root its branches in the heavens. This pointing of Rumi's version of the pear tree tale with its moral bears a remarkable similarity to the moral drawn by May in the merchant's tale, he that misconceiveth, he misdameth. The existence of an earlier Arabic version of Rumi's pear tree fablio, dating probably to the years between 1170 and 1194, is attested in the work of Ibn al-Jawzi, an author at least some of whose work was well known to Rumi. Ibn al-Jawzi was a Hanbali jurist from Baghdad, born there in about 1118 and died in 1201, a prolific author who was credited with between 200 to 1,001 works, about two dozen of which have survived. Though a religious scholar and preacher opposed to religious traditions and beliefs not based upon scripture and the practice of the prophet, he did nevertheless incline towards Sufism as well as Belletre. And he tells a version of the cuckolding fruit tree in his Kitab al-Azkiyah, Book of the Intelligent, which recounts anecdotes of a mostly amusing nature, structured like religious traditions or hadith, giving an isnad or train of, chain of transmission. For this particular story, however, Ibn al-Jawzi seems unable to trace the origin, signaling only that it is not original to him by the phrase, balagana, it has reached us, or been conveyed to us. In his version, told in a prose paragraph, a woman had a lover who demanded that she devise a stratagem by which he might, to use a Chaucerian phrase, swive her, for the equally blunt Arabic term ataaki, in the husband's very presence. Failing to do this, the lover will never speak to the woman again. She promises to do so and arranges for it to take place at the date palm in their yard. She tells the husband she wants to climb and pick some dates and then looks down on him and accuses him of copulating with another woman and in the very presence of his own wife. The husband swore he was all alone, but upon coming down from the tree, the wife continues to quarrel with him. He finally threatens to divorce her if she does not believe him to be alone and in the end decides to climb the tree himself. As you can guess, she calls her companion who gets down to business with her. The husband takes notice, itala'a, and immediately forgives the wife, realizing she had been deceived by the strange view afforded from the tree, for whoever climbs this palm tree sees the like of what you saw. Kullu man yas'adu al-nakhla yara This anecdote comes in the chapter, mention of those who have outsmarted others through their intellect to get what they want, but probably stems from the wiles of women traditions and literature. Chaucer's pear tree episode in The Merchant's Tale is classed by Germain Dempster as an early exemplar of the blind husband and the fruit tree tale for which she distinguishes two subclasses, one wherein the blind man is cured spontaneously by two supernatural onlookers to which Chaucer's version belongs, and other versions in which sight is restored after the man appeals to a deity to which Adolphus's Latin version corresponds. On the grounds that it does not involve blindness but enchantment, incantato in the Decameron and phantasmata in Vendome, Dempster rather adamantly distinguishes Chaucer's tale from the pear tree tale type which appears in Boccaccio's Decameron. 
Furnival, Bloch, and Clouston had made no such distinction, and in fact, Clouston had speculated that the 12th century Latin text of the poem Comedia Lydiae of Matthew, Mathieu de Vendôme, who was born in 1130, may have been a common source for both Chaucer and Boccaccio, adding, however, that the folktale version must have existed and circulated independent of the text. This version of Vendôme is very close to Boccaccio to the point that it must be considered a source, including the names of the characters in Latin, Nicostratus for Boccaccio's Nicostrato and his manservant Pyrrhus for Pyrrho, Lydia and her maidservant Lusca. I would like to suggest that the Arabic date tree tale is certainly an analog, if not indeed the source, of our Persian pear tree tale, and that both share clear affinities with both the pear tree and the blind husband tale categories proposed by Dempster. Therefore, these two strains should not be so sharply delineated one from the other. Common features in both isotopes of the story include the hearing of the noise of love play, in the Arabic version of Ibn al-Jawzi and the Latin version of Adolphus, audit vir strepitum, as the clue to the husband's discovering the adulterous scene. Adolphus goes on to explain, for through the lack of one sense, one generally goes, grows stronger in another sense. Similarly, the disquisition on the nature of optical illusions given in Rumi's version as the moral of the tale bears great resemblance to the excuse which May uses for January's purported misperception in Chaucer's version. Meanwhile, shared in the version of Boccaccio and Chaucer, which Dempster would have us see as distinct tale types, are that the cuckolding is perpetrated with the lady of the house by the Lord's own man, Damian and Piero, whereas the husband has not previously laid eyes upon the paramour in either of the Middle Eastern versions. The Arabic version, like Chaucer, locates the origin of sexual desire and unchastity in the person of the wife's lover. In the Arabic version, this lover demands that the wife copulate with him in plain view of the husband. In Chaucer, Damian pines away for May and declares his love to her, but since January never lets her out of his reach, it is she who devises a way to be with Damian without January being able to tell. Of course, until the divine intervention, restoring his sight. By contrast, it is the woman Lydia in Boccaccio who initiates the affair with a loyal and disbelieving servant, Pyrrho. The Persian version, meanwhile, has the wiles of the wife as the instigation for the foliate flagrante delicto, while the paramour is merely a prop with no speaking lines. Even so, the Persian version seems likely to have known the Arabic version, since Rumi retells other tales by Ibn al-Jawzi from that author's Talbis Iblis. The change from the Arabic date tree to the Persian pear tree seems to have been due to the etymology of the word and its relevance to the story, possibly also to differences in climate and flora where the respective authors wrote. Meanwhile, in both Boccaccio and Chaucer, the deceptive pear tree is also a pear, whereas a fertility symbol, perhaps a fertility symbol as we have noted. Finally, after Lydia identifies the pear tree as the source of the unchaste illusion, it must be felled. In the Commedia Lydiae, by the order of the husband Nicostratus, and in the Decameron by the hand of Pyrrho. However, the palm tree remains standing in the Arabic version, with the husband almost encouraging people to visit it as a tourist site, and it remains standing in the merchant's tale, where May merely leaps down from it to the return uh, of the embrace of January. 
Likewise, in the Persian recitation of this pear tree tale, the tree of deception remains standing, and the base-minded may search for it, though those with spiritual insight will look instead to the heavenly tree of true and undistorted perception. Thus, the potential for the tree to produce future mishaps remains open in Chaucer and in the Middle Eastern versions. You're looking at a, a rare illustration of this scene from the Masnavi. There are very few, maybe no other examples of uh, an illustration of this particular scene. Um, all this suggests that both purported subversions of the tale either share a common original source, or if the blind husband and the fruit tree and the pear tree tales are indeed polygenetic in origin, traits of the separate versions that Dempster elucidates have already cross-pollinated by the 13th century with an Islamicate recitation of the tale. Of these Middle Eastern recitations, the Persian antedates Adolphus by about 40 years and the Arabic by over 100 years, placing it within decades before the version of Vendome, with the exception that the enchanted tree is a date palm, nakhl, rather than a pear. The Arabic version indicates the tale is not original and must therefore even be older than Ibn al-Jawzi. It's not clear how far back the Islamicate iconographic representation of this tale may go, but we re may we remark that the depiction of the scenes in the French translation of the Decameron and in the relatively rare illustration of the Masnavi's pear tree, with the exception of the lover's legs in this Persian illumination being more au naturel than in the European version, which is more chaste, perhaps suggests a common visual source as well. Of course, later illustrators uh, in the West were not always uh, so visually discreet. Uh, Lordings, the time of Westeth, nicht and day. And we now have just a few minutes to turn to the chaste woman's tale, uh, which goes by this heading in Attar's Elahi Name, or Book of God. A Frame tale poem structured as the advice given to his six sons by a wise king about how to rule their passions and their realm. Chaucer gives what I hope to convince you is the selfsame tale as the legend of Custance told by the man of law. It has been argued that the theme of royal intermarriage across ethnic and Christian Muslim boundaries found in various medieval European romances, such as the Middle English King of Tars and the Sudan of Damas, probably stems from an Arabo-Byzantine literary reworking of an anecdotal event reported of Ghazan Khan, the Mongol who converted to Islam in 1295. This Christian-Muslim intermarriage theme was likely transmitted to Europe via the Byzantine epic poem Digenis Akrites. As the name Diogenes suggests, he was himself of dual Arab and Byzantine stock and has perhaps indirectly informed Chaucer's story of Custance in The Man of Law's Tale. Digenis consists of two main parts, the first of which the song of the emir, Digenis's father, concerns us here. It describes an Arab emir who falls in love with a Byzantine general's young and beautiful daughter, whom he has captured. She is rescued by her brothers, but the emir pursues her to Byzantium, where he converts to Christianity in order to marry her. There he receives a letter from his mother in Syria, who rebukes him for his apostasy from Islam. He thereupon returns home and proves to his family the superiority of Christianity to Islam. They are all converted to Christianity and moved to Byzantium. 
Malitsky found an Arabic instance of this tale type in Richard Burton's translation of the Arabian Nights cycle. She thus supposed the tale in question, the tale of King Omar ibn al-Nu'man and his marriage to the Byzantine princess Sophia, had first appeared in Arabic and was later reworked in a Byzantine cultural context. Unfortunately, this particular tale does not appear in the earliest manuscript of Alf Leila Walayla, a Syrian manuscript of the 14th century preserved in the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, and is probably not attested prior to even the 18th and 19th century Arabic manuscripts of the night cycle, by which time, incidentally, the Arabic versions were already contaminated by back translations from the French and English versions. Though we cannot exclude the possibility that the Omar ibn al-Nu'man marriage tale may have circulated in an earlier oral version, it has not been documented in a written source that predates the composition of the medieval European romances which contain the Muslim-Christian intermarriage theme. We do, however, know of other versions of this intermarriage motif from Attar, most notably in the tale of Sheikh San'an from the Mantecoter, composed prior to 1187, or possibly even 1178, depending on which manuscript you recognize as authoritative in giving the date. This well-known tale features a respected Muslim sheikh becoming enamored of a Christian girl whom he follows into the heart of Christendom and for whose sake he undergoes much degradation and suffering before being restored to his native land and faith. Attar's source for this story may have been an anecdote related in the Tofat al-Muluk, ascribed to the famous Muhammad al-Ghazali, or may ultimately rely upon a hadith related by Abdurrahman bin al-Jawzi in Dham al-Hawa on the authority of the son of Ahmad ibn Hanbal, who had heard it from the hadith scholar Abdul Razak San'an-i, whence the name of the protagonist of the story, Sheikh San'an. This Christian-Muslim intermarriage motif circulated in both European and Arabo-Persian iterations, and in both cultural contexts, it was obviously read as symbolic of Muslim-Christian relations, both religious and political. As such, we may hypothesize that cross-fertilization of the European and Arabic expressions of this intermarriage theme was likely at one or various points in the history of the tale type. Argi Ryu has pointed to the essential similarity of the intermarriage tales of the father in the epic of Digenus Akritis and Attar Sheikh San'an, arguing on this basis that while the two poems were not necessarily interdependent, they must have drawn upon a common reservoir of sources. It has been proposed that these common sources were likely of Islamicate expression, though this does not necessarily allow us to conclude that the Ur source of all Christian-Muslim intermarriage or love affair is an Arabic or Persian tale or legendary elaboration of one particular historical event. First, tracing European versions of the tale to an Islamicate source would not exclude the possibility of even earlier Christian, Jewish, or Hellenistic iterations having influenced the Islamicate version. Furthermore, such intermarriages may have been a historical commonplace on the Islamic Christian frontiers and or the theme may have functioned archetypally. If so, various authors who were unaware of any prior versions are likely to have independently depicted the uneasy interface between religions and civilizations in terms of intermarriage. But uh, it's not this particular aspect that I wish to focus on here of intermarriage, but on the tribulations of Custance subsequent to the murder of her fiancé, which is all predicated on one of these intermarriages, 
Custance is sent by her father, the emperor, in Rome to marry the sultan of Syria, who has fallen in love with the report of Custance. He hasn't actually seen her, and agrees to convert to Christianity in order to marry with her. So it begins with an intermarriage. But I want to focus on the suffering of Custance after the marriage uh, does not take place. The tale of the long-suffering and chaste Custance related by the Man of Law in the Canterbury Tales probably dates to the years between 1388 and 1395 and bears a remarkable similarity in many of its particulars to the tribulations and sufferings of Marhume in the Zanepar Saw tale, the first story told by the king to his first son in the Elahi Name composed by Attar, probably in the late 12th century. The chaste wife is sundered from her husband by different circumstances in these two tales, but both stories then subject her to a strikingly similar series of tribulations brought about by the lust which her beauty engenders in other men, yet ultimately she overcomes these through her righteousness and piety. The structural and thematic similarities of these two tales have not, to my knowledge, been previously remarked upon, though, as we shall see, they are indeed analogues of one another. Whether Attar's version may appoint us in the direction of a possible source for the European versions of the tale upon which Chaucer based his Custance remains to be seen. Both authors apparently modeled their tales on earlier versions. Attar's late 12th century version of the tale in Persian is preceded by and likely derives from a 10th century Arabic antecedent found in Al-Kuleini, as I've mentioned, while Chaucer knew the Constance tale directly from the English uh, of John Gower and the French of Nicholas Trivet. The versions of Attar and Al-Kuleini nevertheless document that tokens of this tale type, which antedate most of the known European tokens, did circulate within the Islamicate world. It is thus possible that Attar and Chaucer's versions may descend, albeit through collateral lines, from a common story or cycle of folk stories. Reflecting on Chaucer's Custance and Attar's Marhume as respective Christianate and Islamicate analogues of a chaste woman narrative may at least add to our general understanding of cultural interchange in the Mediterranean Sea and perhaps also contribute to the construction of a fuller stemma of the transmission and diffusion of the chaste woman tale type. However, other more geographically remote examples of the theme of the chaste and long-suffering wife likewise exist. Sita in the Ramayana, for example, and this fact may encourage us to view the chaste wife as a Jungian archetype or as a polygenetic emblem of suffering feminine virtue that simply reflects the power imbalance inherent in patriarchal societies irrespective of their cultural and religious contexts. If, however, we pursue the possibility that a hypothetical, hypothetical Ur version of the tale may exist, this would, of course, require that we attempt to track down the ultimate sources of the Islamicate versions. It has recently been proposed that the Persian romances of the 11th century, Valmeko Azra, Varqa, Bagolsha, and Visoramin, echo central topoi of certain Hellenistic novels, including Caritans, Karyas, and Kaliro, Xenophon of Ephesus's An Ephesian Tale, Heliodorus's An Ethiopian's, Ethiopian Story, and Achilles Tatius's Leokepe and Clitophon. They share the plot or structural premise of separated spouses or lovers who either die at one another's, one another's graveside or are, after much misadventure and peregrinated suffering, reinstated to one another's arms. 
The similarity of Persian romances to these Greek tales of the early common era may not be due to direct borrowing, but to their being tinged with the remnants of Hellenistic influence. This seems a rather ironic circumstance, or perhaps a poetic justice, in that several of the Greek originals draw or purport to draw their matter from a Persianate milieu, perhaps with the classical character of Panthea and Xenophon's Cyropedia as their ultimate archetype. Davis points out that the story we will consider here, Attar's recitation of the chaste wife, may indeed reflect the lingering popularity of a type encountered in the Hellenistic novel. As we shall see below, it has additional or perhaps alternative and direct associations with Judaic material, possibly through the Islamic Israeliyat. Uh, well, I'm going to conclude this with a set setting forth of the crucial analogical features between Kustans and Marhume. Uh, the emperor sends Kustans to Syria, abandoning the daughter in his charge to uncertain circumstances with a strange man because it will benefit Christendom. Marhume's husband leaves his wife in his brother's care for a journey to Mecca. This abandonment by her rightful protector, who does so in furtherance of his faith in each case, leads to trying circumstances because of the treachery of an in-law. Two, the concealed nature of the woman's identity. The Sultan of Syria falls in love with Constance, sight unseen. After this, her identity as Empress and Christian is lost, and with the exception of the knight in the constable's castle, other men seem to fall in love with her through the report of others in the case of King Allah through the report of the constable, and in the case of the evil steward at the second castle through other folk that have been watching the sight of a woman washed on shore with a ship. Back on land, Constance's aunt does not recognize her, and Allah has to stare, her husband, has to stare at her before recognition comes upon his face, and even her own father does not at first recognize Constance either though Allah does see her child who reminds him of his deceased wife. Meanwhile, the brother-in-law of Marhume and indeed the other men she comes in contact with treat her well up to the point that they see her face because she's normally veiled. Brother-in-law, Bedouin, hanging youth, merchant who buys her, passengers aboard a ship. All of them, upon seeing her face, begin to lust after her. So she decides to change her appearance to that of a man. And so her victimizers, as well as her husband, do not recognize her initially when they are reunited, reunited with her at the end of the tale. Third, the framing for the murder of a loved one of the master in whose house the chaste woman dwells is common to both tales. Marhume in the home of the Bedouin is accused by the black slave of killing the Bedouin's child through his leaving the knife under her pillow. In the constable's castle, Constance refuses the advances of a young knight who did love her so hot a foul affection, and he therefore, the knight, therefore kills uh, Dame Hermengeld, who is the protector of Custance, and places the bloody knife uh, beside Custance. Fourth, both Constance and Marhume are attacked upon a ship by would-be rapists, and both are saved by a prayer when the assailants are either drowned or burned, leaving the chaste woman adrift in a ship full of merchandise and provisions. Fifth, both wind up after many adventures reunited with their husbands. After one of the husband's relatives, the mother of Allah, the brother of Marhume's pilgrim-bound husband, tries to do her harm, and both subsequently become queens. 
Six, both women through their piety manage to convert others. Marhume, as a pious hermit, sets an example for the king, but also brings about the repentance of all those who harmed her. Constance converts to Islam. Uh, sorry, Constance converts the sultan, the constable, the constable, Allah, and the whole town in England where she dwells to Christianity, not obviously to Islam. Seventh, both women in their lives in power. Marhume as the king-queen who transfers power to her husband and practices prayer in her hermitage, and Constance as the queen of Allah, and the mother of the future emperor lives with her father in the end in virtue and holy almsgiving. Well, there are many other points of similarity, actually, but I think I have given you enough to convince you, I hope, of the analog analogic nature of these two tales. The chief differences between Attar's chaste woman and the version told in Arabic uh, is <clears throat> uh, that the Arabic version places the story in a Jewish setting with a Jewish king and judge, and it is a prophet of the Israelites who leads the people to find her and confess their sins. The husband is also guilty for having left on business when the chaste wife had asked him not to, thus leading to her tribulations. She does not become king in the Arabic version, but rejects life with men altogether. This is a 10th century text, by the way, a legal text, uh, in which the woman, seeing the bad behavior of men, decides to reject life with men altogether. And she sends her husband away to occupy her days in prayer. In the Torah's Joseph narrative, of course, it is rather the beautiful male who is persecuted by a more powerful woman, the wife of Potiphar, the persecuted beautiful youth is also the most involved narrative in the Quran, Surah 12, which presents another recitation of the Joseph story in which the female friends of the wife of Aziz, Joseph's overseer, are turned into lascivious ladies upon seeing Joseph's beauty. Marhume, an Attar's chase woman tale, becomes an emblem of the Quranic Joseph when she adopts a male disguise and suggests to the king that the shipman had desired him or her uh, but she's posing as him now. This recalls, of course, Joseph, the beautiful Qulam, and it is hinted and discussed in the exegetical literature of the Quran that Joseph is an object of desire for those merchants who bought him from his brothers when he is brought up out of the well. Rabbinic material made much of the feminine chastity as an index of the community's piety. Whether or not a version of the persecuted woman appears in Talmudic lore, as indeed the Arabic version of our story tends to suggest by situating it in an Israelite kingdom, the motif does occur as the central theme of one biblical Greek apocryphon, the book of Daniel and Susanna, which involves two judges falsely accusing a beautiful married woman of adultery in her husband's locked garden. Daniel exposes the perjury by asking each judge under which tree the act took place. One answers clove, the other answers you. They may as well have answered date or pear tree, as in our first example, but even so, perhaps the ur-seed of the chaste woman tale is rabbinic. Certainly, the tree of knowledge is biblical, though our pear date tree ostensibly performs the opposite function of deceiving or bringing ignorance and blindness to truth, while in the book of Daniel, we may even have a foreshadowing of the fruit tree of the cuckolded husband, Fablio. 
In any case, Chaucer's Custance and all the other European instances of the chaste empress or persecuted queen tale have these early analogues in Persian and Arabic versions. Perhaps we may therefore close with the words of Chaucer's host at the end of the Man of Law's tale and say, this was a thrifty tal from the Middle East for the nonas. Thank you very much. So, if anyone has questions, I will try to dodge them. <laughs> I have a question. Uh, you know, uh, when a story, for example, appears in the Kolegni, Kolegni is sort of the embodiment of, uh, or the beginning of Shiite fundamentalism, puts this narrative to one use, and then when it reappears in Chaucer, uh, seems to change its, uh, the moral of the story. Uh, so to what extent can we say these are the same stories if the moral implication uh, <coughs> is at times just the opposite of what, what it appears in the original story? Well, there's two issues. One is uh, what the author... Could you repeat the question? So the question is if there is a difference in the moral that's drawn from the stories, for example, in Kuleini and in Chaucer, um, how could they be the same tale? And I think the answer to that is that the, the tale can be established as being the same tale on the basis of typological aspects of the tale which are unlikely to have been imaginatively arrived at independently. If you have, as I've enumerated, seven at least, um, it's highly unlikely that these were accidentally or uh, coincidentally um, worked out in this form. Of course, the author of any individual tale may also have other tales that they're thinking of when they compose one tale, and it may suggest to them a different conclusion. Or indeed, they may take the tale to have a different meaning. So uh, the moral that comes at the end of these tales is often at least in the case of Rumi's Masnavi, is often something of an afterthought. It doesn't always feel as if it's the natural conclusion that you might come to from reading this tale. Um, and I think that the authors have variously find the tale to be the reason for expounding the tale rather than the moral to be the reason that they're expounding the tale. So they come up with something at the end which puts it in the context of advice literature. Uh, they're not supposed to be telling immoral tales, after all, so they have to look for a, a tale. Uh, but the fact that they come to different conclusions or morals may make us... Uh, yes, I mean, you, you could then classify the tales on the basis of the morals that they come to and put them into different categories. But the actual elements of the tale are similar enough that they still must have somehow been drawing upon a common source, I think. With the, with the moral actually being less important, more, more uh, malleable than the actual features of the tale. Now, of course, the cultural settings also move uh, when you're 
telling the tale in Europe, you have to have different figures as religious authorities than you have in the Middle East. So there, I mean, there are, it's the structural parts of the tale and not the specifics so much that are uh, evidence of their consanguinity. Yes? Um, I noticed that most of the tales um, seem to be secular in nature, and even those that concerned um, religious or, or moral stances um, actually had a secular viewpoint of, of religion and morality. Um, is there a correlation between that and the way in which they traveled, perhaps from east to west, uh, and vice versa? Actually, I haven't thought of that. That's an interesting proposition. Um, the, the only thing that occurs to me to say, not having considered this before, is that it's quite common for um, secular tales to be told, for example, in the Masnavi or in Attar, uh, without the slightest sense that it's inappropriate or that there's a dichotomy between the secular and the religious. Um, also, in, particularly in the Islamicate versions where there are body tales told, it's not thought to be in any way in contravention of religious uh, views. So they're fairly comfortable with the mixing of the secular and the, uh, and the religious. However, your suggestion that it may make them more portable because they're secular, that may be true. That's actually a nice observation. Indeed, yeah. They're, they're probably the sorts of things that people would think of first to tell rather than the more complicated and moral tales. Yeah. Well, in the particular quotation that uh, I was referring to, the association of strong women, he's just finished telling a tale in the previous tale, the Clark's tale, that is rather uh, is complaining about Griselda, who is a, a very pious person, but she hasn't stood up to her husband when it was in her interest to do so. So he's, he's complaining and saying, stand up at defense uh, and be strong like a camel. Well, the camel is not native to Europe. So he's using camel and tiger as uh, uh, you know, animal emblems for the characteristics that these women should have. And it's also referring to India. I mean, it's not a particularly necessary conclusion that one would arrive at, but it does seem to me that Chaucer is associating these uh, examples of strong women with imagery from the Orient. Orient being, in those days, uh, the older meaning of the Orient, anything beyond Jerusalem, Jerusalem to China, uh, or India in this case. Yes. 
Yeah, I mean, we've, we picked just a couple of the examples, but these things show up again and again and again and again in famous and not so famous European renditions. They're very uh, persistent uh, motifs and, and tale types in European literature. They, they must perform an important function for us uh, because they're repeated over and over again in different guises. Is there any evidence about how they got from the east to the west, the ones that think have a source there? This is a, such a difficult question to find because if they're, first of all, if they are transferred by merchants, uh, there is not going to be any evidence, documentary evidence. Um, and there is very rarely a case where somebody specifically says that they are taking this from a Middle Eastern source. The, the only case where we're really quite sure is in the Andalusian Muwashahat or the Kharjas, where you have poems that are in Arabic with, a, uh, with an Iberian uh, Spanish uh, refrain. Um, and even there, Europeanists will contest whether that necessarily means that Arabic poetry was an influence on the troubadours or not. <clears throat> so it tends to be something that was a, a fairly contested question, depending upon which side of the national literary scene you were approaching it from. Uh, but the reason that it's still controversial is because there's almost never documentary evidence where you can conclusively say, well, this was translated from here, or this person has their source from, from Rumi, for example. None. None of these were available in translation. I think the first translation to a European language of Atar's Elahi Naume, for example, was done in the 1970s. Uh, the earliest translation of uh, Persian works to European languages to French were in the 16th century with uh, Anvar Soheli. And then the first book that was printed in Europe in Persian script was Saadi's Golestan in the 17th century, and a translation from the 1640s. Saadi became very popular in the 1600s and was translated to Dutch and German and English. But aside from very few works like this, there is really very little translation history until you come to um, the late 18th century when Sir William Jones, with his translations of Hafez, makes a veritable vogue among the Romantic poets for translation of Persian ghazals. So Goethe was familiar with Hafez and so forth and so on. But before that, it was relatively uncommon. They were interested when they translated, for the most part, in translating medical texts, scientific texts, and sometimes religious texts that would help them understand or refute the other side's religion, and not so much literary belles or especially poetry. Because they would have thought you have to translate this to verse, and it was just a difficult, difficult endeavor. But then, again, as we've seen, these are also illustrated. So it's quite conceivable that a person without knowing the language could look at the book see a painting and have the story explained to them and have a very good sense of it without actually ever reading a translation. 
Okay. Thank you very much. The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.